everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things Black History and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 44 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lincook and as always I'm your host and today's episode is going to be about the story of Joseph Cloth, Britain's first black bus driver. You might be thinking... Well, what's a bit of a random topic? Why are we speaking about bus drivers? Well, following on from last week's episode about the Bristol bus boycotts in 1963, kind of got me thinking about, you know, who were the drivers before that? Where were they? What was their life like? And what were their experiences like considering the bus drivers or potential bus drivers of Bristol had such a terrible time in the 60s? And also, I just thought it was quite interesting because... There is some research being done at him at the moment and a call to action at the end. If you listen along, I'm going to tell you at the end what that research is, what it's for and what the people researching him want to know about um, Joseph Cloth, who was known to family and friends as Joe. Now, Joe was London's first black bus driver um, and consequently Britain's first black bus driver. He was among the very first drivers of motor buses in London as petrol engines began to replace horse-drawn transport. Now, this is how far back we're going, because there were no petrol engines prior to this point, you know? Joe Clough was one of the first bus drivers driving a motor bus, let alone the first black bus drivers. And this is how far back we're going. We're we're thinking about horse-drawn carriages. We are thinking about, you know, the Victorian era. So... Very different from what I normally speak about, you know, the Windrush era, post-war, 1940s, 50s, 60s. We are taking it back. We're taking it back to his birth in 1887 um, and then fast forward into the 1900s when he moves to Britain. Another reason I wanted to do an episode on him today is because I hadn't ever heard his name before. And I'm quite weary, as you might know, of celebrating like first blacks this or first black that as a milestone because it often highlights especially today when you're hearing I the first black person to do this and I'm thinking it's 2021 this is bleak you know however I think in this case because it's like the 1900s it speaks a lot not only to his race and his achievements despite that but also the fact that you know technology and transportation advancements are very real Um, And as we think about this man who not only was one of the first black bus drivers, but also one of the first drivers to drive a petrol engine vehicle, because London transport at that time was shifting from horse-drawn carriages to actual engines. And the fact that he had to learn this new technology. And, you know, as we kind of grow up, I think we were in the generation, if you're my age anyway, that kind of grew up around phones, but didn't have phones. Our parents might not have had a phone until a bit later on in their lives. But, you know, our parents or say our grandparents, they would have been that generation that had to learn how to use a phone. And as much as we did and we've learned to use smartphones as we've learned to use, I'm sure, many other things in the future. It really does take a lot sometimes, especially when we're the only people doing it. And that's not really the case for us. We're never like the only people that are learning to use a new phone because everybody is or learning to use a new system. But Joe Clough um, and the other kind of bus drivers at the time would have been the only people that were like learning to drive petrol engines. So Joe Clough, born in Kingston, Jamaica in 1887, he was orphaned um, as a boy 
and he began to work at a young age for a Scottish doctor, a man called Dr R.C. White, who employed Joe initially as a stable hand. And then when his employer, the Scottish doctor, moved to Britain in 1906, Joe agreed to go with him and live with him and work in London, which I feel like must have been quite, not necessarily a big decision, but a bit of a life-changing one because, you know, he's obviously used to Jamaica. He doesn't have parents that are alive. Um, and he decides to kind of uproot his life at quite a young age. He would have only been around 19 at the time, but, you know, decides to go and live and work in London. And Joe started by driving for him, actually, driving a pair of horses, but soon learned to drive motor vehicles and began to work as Dr. White's chauffeur in a petrol-drawn car. And, you know, the history we have on Joe and the comments he made about England when he arrived kind of fascinate me because, number one, he's speaking about Victorian England, which was worlds away from post-war Britain. Um, And I don't really think too much about black Victorians. I don't think I've ever said the phrase black Victorians because, you know, black Tudors has become something synonymous with like black British history. But looking at, you know, black Britons through the lens of the Victorian era is something a little bit different. Um, Also, I feel like Joe Clough is speaking about things that seem so simple that I would might take for granted in his observations. Um, And it's been said that, for example, you know, Clough noticed the trees. He remarks, um, Dr. White, why are there so many dead trees about? Um, He was told then that it was winter because obviously the leaves fall off of the trees and they look pretty much dead. It's quite a good observation. Um, And Clough commented later, like, we don't have trees like that in Jamaica. I'd never seen anything like it before. I think it's quite important because it speaks somewhat on the culture shock, the landscape shock um, that he might have faced, you know, when coming to England, which I don't think Windrush generation would have felt because thinking about the colonial education system, which was actually kind of growing and incorporating so much of the English curriculum in the 1920s, Joe Clough wouldn't have gone through that education necessarily um, because he's obviously, you know, leaves Jamaica by 1906 as a 19-year-old. And so in the same way that when we think about comments made um, by Stuart Hall, who knew all about Wordsworth's daffodils and the landscapes of like the Peak District and so on and so forth in England through Shakespeare and through the poets, um, Joe Clough might not have had that. And so the landscape and what England actually looked like would have been a little bit more of a culture shock for him. Um, yeah, that's what came to my mind anyway. Um, but Clough comments on the trees, um, and obviously you might be thinking, well, you know, he came to England with this man, Dr. White. What is that relationship like? You know, is he coming as a accompaniment, a friend, a child, a servant, a slave? Um, now obviously slavery is illegal at that point. Um, Clough comes to Britain as a servant, um, or that's how he's described anyway, but was treated really well according to many sources. Um, and Clough often said that, you know, he his relationship with Dr. White kind of seemed more like companions and like a servant-master relationship, for want of a better kind of set of words. Um, but he said like after he'd left the doctor's employment, um, the Whites would entertain him in the drawing room, treating him as an equal in spite of attitudes of that day, obviously him being a black man. He said the doctor was a lovely man. After I left him, I could go to see him, go up to the front door, knock, saying, is the doctor in? He treated us just 
the same as you and me talking together. No nose in the air. And he said that in an interview. And so, you know, this relationship is obviously not the standard for a Victorian era attitude towards black people and race, um, which I thought was quite interesting about his life. And so, yeah, Clough arrives in London and works for Dr. White around town, you know, driving his coach and horses and then obviously driving his motor car, um, which were becoming more and more popular. Um, and he learned to drive kind of through this work. Um, and then after that, he does leave um, working with the doctor and he, he, you know, kind of goes out on his own, shall we say. One of the first jobs he did was as a roller skate fitter at Hackney Roller Skating Rink. Um, and then Joe turned his driving experience that he had to driving the buses. So in 1910, uh, Joe applies to work at the London General Omnibus Company, which is kind of like, I guess, a sibling of Bristol's Omnibus Company, but less racist, maybe, uh, which shortened LGOC. He became a spare driver. Then he passed his bus driving test and started driving a number 11 B-type bus between Liverpool Street and Wormwood Scrums. So central London-ish um, for the start of that route. Um, and Joe Clough was the first black London bus driver um, in this role in 1910. Um, this was the year, also the year, he began taking his wife-to-be on weekly visits to the music hall. Um, and he was, she was, sorry, the daughter of a local uh, publican. Margaret, her name was, worked as a domestic servant and she and Joe married pretty soon after in 1911 and they enjoyed a happy married life together. Margaret was always prepared to support her husband in the face of racism, which he obviously did face, you know. We can't pretend um, that Britain isn't... <laughs> I was going to say Britain isn't full of racism, but maybe that's not the right thing to say. Britain has a many elements of racism in it, um, and it would be very ridiculous to think that Joe Clough, a black bus driver in 1910, faced no racism. Unfortunately, um, yes, I, I don't live in that kind of... Uh, headspace to think that at all um Clough wanted to rise above it always however um you know he he met people's stares and comments often by raising his hat and wishing people a good day as opposed to getting you know too caught up in it and his story isn't one that I want to like bog down with like stories of racial prejudice because I just it's not every day um and also he was the type of character I think to deal with racism in a way that was like I'm not going to let these people get me down. I Not that I don't care what they think about me, because obviously most, you know, you care about how you are perceived, especially in a public-facing job like being a bus driver. But he wasn't going to let it ruin his spirit. And I think that's very important. And one of the kind of reasons why I think he's such a cool character to learn about. Um, so, yeah, he experienced racism during his life and obviously his career. In 1970, in a newspaper article, he actually recalled, and I quote, the only time I had trouble in London, I had a boy used to call after me. He called me Blackie. One night I stopped him and slapped him and he said, what have you done that for? I said, where I come from, we don't call after people, especially the olders. It is very rude. And he didn't do it again. So yes, you know, there are instances where you can raise your hat and wish someone a good day. But sometimes people need a slap. And Joe Clough did exactly that. And it's funny as well because I feel like in Jamaica... As in most cultures, respecting your elders is very important. And, you know, he wasn't going to stand for this young man disrespecting him as an elder man at this time. Um, so, obviously, you know, this is all happening like the early 1910s. 
uh, the First World War is coming. So when it started, Clough wanted to obviously join up, help defend his adopted country. So he enlisted in the Army Service Corps based at Kempson Barracks in 1915. Obviously, with his experience driving, he ended up driving a field ambulance for four years in Ypres on the Western Front in northern France and Belgium. And, you know, if you know anything about the First World War and the battles, those are the areas that saw some of the bloodiest battles. You know, the Western Front, there are so many war poets that have written about it. Savory Sassoon, uh, Wilfred Owen, um, you know the ones. So... Yeah, he was part of that battle and part of that war effort there as a serviceman. And again, you know, you don't hear about a man called Joe Clough when you think about um, ex-servicemen and those that helped secure victory for Britain in the First World War. And he was, you know, the first black bus driver and an ex-serviceman. And I've never heard of him before researching this episode, which I just, yeah, just says a lot about black British history. It says a lot about British history. Um, and how they treat the stories of black people, I think, more so than ever. This this one is one of those for me. So during the war, um, you know, Joe Clough forged really strong bonds with his unit, his comrades. He was a captain of their cricket team in true, you know, West Indian form um, during, like, the like leisure time that they had. And a lot of um, ex-servicemen speak about the leisure time they have and using it to play sports, normally cricket, football, rugby. Um, many years after the war, Joe drove his bus decorated with poppies at Remembrance Day parades in Bedford, which is where his family moved to in 1919 after World War One. Once in Bedford, Joe and his wife have two daughters in the 20s, um, Jean and Margaret Grace. And, you know, he was also one of the only black inhabitants um, and his family in Bedford um, until after the Second World War. Um, he worked for the National Omnibus Company until 1947. Then after some time as a truck driver, he decided to set himself up as a taxi driver in 1949. And he only actually retired in 1968 um, at the age of 82. So he was driving his own taxi, you know, he set himself up, own little small business um, of taxi driving until 1968. Um, unfortunately, Joe died in 1976, having had a wonderful and long life um, at the age of 91. Um, and it was in the last decade of his life where he kind of becomes a local celebrity, thanks to a book called The Unmelting Pot by John Brown, which was published in 1970, um, which features a chapter about Joe and Margaret Clough. Um, and many local people then kind of started to remember him with great affection um, they might have been around. Obviously, he was a taxi driver. You might have known him. He might have driven you somewhere. Um, and I have so many questions for Joe Clough, even though obviously he's not here um, and can't answer them. But I just thought, you know, he didn't... He passed away in 1976. This is well into the Windrush generation's migration. Like, how would he have felt when he started seeing, you know, an influx of black faces from the same place as him? Like, was that something he was like happy to see was he was he worried for them was he you know excited to have neighbors that looked like him once again obviously he wouldn't have had that since he was like a child um and yeah what was life like in his old age because in some ways I think Britain went backwards a little bit in terms of like attitudes about race anti-immigrant feeling because obviously there were quite a lot of, of black and Asian people moving into Britain and that was causing a lot of problems and you know how did he navigate that 
because it seemed to be the case that in his younger life he could bat racism off with a smile, a tip of his hat and kind of shrug it off or, or slap someone up if necessary. But, you know, could he do that in his 70s and 80s and 90, early 90s or, you know, was, was Britain a different place for him then? Anyway, I wanted to think about Joe Clough's legacy um, and... More importantly, the call to action that we have um, coming from this episode today. So this story um, was picked up and the story of Joe Clough in a poem by a man called Abe Gibson. And then a play was written by a man called Neil Gore. And this play is called Farewell Leicester Square and it's about Joe Clough's life. Um, And this play was actually on touring in July earlier this year, 2021 which I'm kicking myself about a little bit because I'm thinking I didn't know about this before. So obviously I can't even tell all the listeners to go and watch this play because it's gone, Um, which is obviously very annoying and I'm sorry. Um, However, maybe one day it will come back. But it's a one-man play actually, um, directed by Louise Townsend, um, original artwork done by Scarlett Reichardt and new music done by Teo Akinbode. And the person that plays Joe Clough, actually, because it's obviously a one-man show, um, is a man called Philip Alagoke. Um, And, yeah, I just thought it was so cool that his story had been picked up to the point of being made into a play, and obviously the poem before it. Um, The writer Neil Gore said in an interview, I think Joe Clough himself would have been thrilled to know his life was the inspiration for a play, though perhaps surprised, as he was, by all accounts, a very modest man. And that is kind of the image that was conjured up in my research whenever I kind of read anything about him or people speaking about him was that he's a very modest kind of man. He wanted to do what he had to do, you know, provide for his family and go home at the end of the day. Um, It wasn't too much flair or pomp or circumstance with him. He was just a down to earth guy. Um, But, you know, Neil Gore goes on to say, but his life story is so rich and fulsome, coming from his desire to be so actively involved and fascinated by everything that came his way, that he was so enthusiastic, capable and exploited his skills to the full, meant that he simply could not be ignored and that made him a very attractive and likeable person. There is so much to celebrate in his story as he overcame any hint of inequality, brushed away occasional racism, instead offering only his best in his contributions to family, workmates, neighbours, war comrades and the local community of his adopted home in Bedford. That's why we have decided to tell his story. Like him, it's simply one that can't be ignored. It's also why we would love members of his family to join us in celebration of his life and to share them all the research that has been discovered about him, to remember modest, lovable Joe Clough, who was also a true trailblazer. And he really was... I use the word trailblazer a lot thinking about the Windrush generation, but this man was like 50 years ahead, (laughs) 50 years ahead of the game um, in the sense of how early he came. And I think it's very important that these stories are celebrated and we don't just limit ourselves to the Windrush gen. And I love the Windrush gen. It's my favourite period of history, I think. And it's why I talk about it so much. It's what this podcast has kind of become about. But it doesn't mean we won't just do that we have to branch out and I think for a man like Joe Clough it's very important that we do so so the appeal and the call for help is actually to help find Joe's Bedford descendants and you might be thinking wow that's a big ask and it is but you never know who's listening to this podcast and I don't know if we have big numbers in Bedford the stats only break down the listeners by country so I can see how many people listen in the United Kingdom but I don't know where they come from 
Um, and so, you know, if you see this episode, you're listening or you feel like someone lives in Bedford that you know, maybe of Jamaican descent, you might think, oh, they might be a descendant of Joe Cloth. Maybe their surname's Cloth. Maybe it's not. But feel free to send this podcast out, you know. Let's find these descendants um, because they are trying to figure out, you know, any other pieces of his story. Maybe, I guess, find pictures, potentially any objects that they have about him. And they said that Louise Townsend of the Townsend Theatre Productions, who, um, you know, was part of the production of the play, she said, we know that one of their daughters married into the George family of Bedford, so we'd be grateful to know if anyone knows any of Joe's descendants and could put us in touch. Now, this kind of went out earlier this year, like before the play, so like March, April, May, June. So I don't know if, you know, any work's been done in finding these people, or should I say any success has been made in finding any of his descendants, but I just think it would be so cool to do that because, you know, he is living within his descendants today and it would be cool to share, I guess, his story. Maybe they know it, maybe they don't. Um, and maybe they have pieces that we don't know yet and kind of like feel like being a historian is sometimes being a detective. So it's kind of cool to think that, you know, you can do some digging and, and find people. However, I say all that to also say that I am a bit late on the story and the uptake. So for all I know, they've actually made contact with his descendants already. And I've just said all that for no reason. But, you know, maybe he, they haven't. And so... You know, if if you're out there, if you're listening, <laughs> please make contact. There's quite a lot of articles about um, the play and about the search. So I'm sure, yeah, you'll be able to kind of find the people to get in contact with. And I'll put some links in the show notes. So if you know anything or have any information, please do get in touch with the relevant people. But that is all we have time for on this episode. If you're on the way to work, I hope you have a wonderful commute. If you're on the way home, I have hope you've had a great day and have a wonderful evening. And wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're wonderful. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I will see you again next week for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter.